I don't pay a ton of attention to what we're doing. Anyways, so when I was a kid, I was probably like in the fifth grade, I read this book. It was called Crispin. That is like crisp in a bag. And Good. it was set in the Middle Ages. And there was this like young surf boy named Crispin. And he was just, you know, being hungry, working the fields. And then something happened in the town. And then he had to go on an adventure. Of course. The details are foggy. Clearly. Anyways, he's like on the road, having a good time. I think he's hiding from people. And then That doesn't sound like a good time. <laughs> no, I mean, like it wasn't like a good time. But like, I think anything's better than just like subsistence farming. That's for, true. Like, a shitty master. Mm. And so he has this like little cross and it's made of lead. And then next thing you know, he's in the city center, but like it seems like it takes forever. They're walking for days. And then it turns out that his biological father was like a lord or like somebody with property. And so then he was set to inherit things because of a thing that had happened at the beginning that sent him on his adventure. And the only proof he had was this like little lead cross. But I like don't really remember how this all worked out in the end. But the Middle Ages sound like hell. Also, just the fact that, like, this is a story written for kids, and it's, like, essentially about, like, a rape. Pretty much. Right? Like, I assume. Yeah. If his oh, dad's well. a lord and his mom is a serf. Yeah, cool. I Did think they, they ever play it off like it wasn't rapey, but it's, like, if you impregnate someone and then leave them to die in the field, don't really feel like that was super chill, regardless. And, like, yeah, and, like, the power dynamics. Yeah. Like, consent within those sort of situations is tricky. But it's okay because, because the kid inherited stuff. I don't even think he does. I think it was part of a series <laughs> and I only read the one because I was so confused. Wow, uh, you're like me. Oh, Never. You know what? I It was probably one of the only series that I haven't finished. So yes, in this one instance, I did pull a Marika and uh, only read the one. But everything else I finished, goddammit. Good for you. I can I count guess. on like one hand the kind the number of books that I haven't read to completion. Which is probably a waste of my time. Both the ah. counting and the reading of them. Anyways. Yes. So, yes. Hunger. Hunger. <laughs> the driving lead. force uh, in land and the Middle Ages. Things we're going to talk about today. Yes. On uh, part two of our bread series on pantry staples. The podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. I'm Marika. And I'm Emily. And uh, today, yeah, we're talking about bread from, like, kind of end of Roman Empire to, like, 18th, 19th century? Not sure. Indeterminate. <laughs> to a point of time that is not, like, uh, Time is irrelevant anyway. Time is, yeah, it's fake. Whatever. Which is a bold thing for a history-based podcast to say. Um, and yet, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> so... Morning. Yeah. More so than Ooh. usual today, everything is a mess. <laughs> so let me start you off with a quote, if I yeah, may. Always. It is by Anthelme Rilat Savarin, and it is Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are. Mm-hmm. Which is basically should be the new tagline of this podcast. Yeah. Uh but like in a more generalized tell you tell me what an entire population eat, and I will tell you. <laughs> who those people are but also can't really sum it up like that either so let's talk about china and also like asia but like mainly china and how we didn't really get to them last time (laughs) we we really heavily focused on that egypt rome situation 
Which, I mean, uh, there was a lot to talk about there. There's a to. lot to talk about. We didn't even get to my favorite, like, Mark Anthony, Julius Caesar, Cleopatra question of who was better in bed, what was going on, how did those kids, like, turn out? Bad. Not good. Dead, of course, but, like, beyond that. <laughs> not good. <laughs> like, I skimmed what I was going to say. <laughs> Anyways, so... Leavened bread. Again, we're talking leavened the entire time because this is the fermentation season. So we are doing that. But that was a little bit slower or like later to be consumed in China and again, other parts of Asia. Probably it's due to a larger tradition of consuming grains unmilled. So we would just be having them more as like a porridge as opposed to like ground into a flour and then turned into bread, which... Just a different way of doing things, getting the nutrients in somehow else. Uh, we see the earliest mills in China were probably developed uh, during the Han Dynasty and probably influenced by Middle Eastern or European construction. So they, it's definitely an import there. Um, and the Han dates. Dynasty is like, <laughs> oof. I didn't write it down, but I did look it up. It's like, I feel like it's 200 to 200. You know what I mean? Like 200 yeah. BC to Mm-hmm. uh yeah let's go with that sure yeah old yeah exactly but yeah exactly old but like they were doing like milling and again when we had this whole conversation in, like the first episode of people being like oh you know we just took a rock and we ground it up like there could have been that stuff too but we and the only reason that the mills themselves are indicative of this practice is because we are seeing this previous practice of turning them into more like a porridge without milling them Right. So, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, we also see, like, and again, everybody assumes you think about Asia, you think about rice. That's obviously not the total picture. That's just a very, like, one-note description. Of a huge uh, country. Huge continent. <laughs> or continent. Like, just, yes, the country yes. of Asia. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, okay, see, again, we're using China as our main example here. The north of China is doing a lot of, like, millet and wheat. So they're using those things for, like, either porridge or, you know, eventually to turn them into flour for breads. Whereas the southern part of China is going to have a lot more rice predominantly. So they're going to be using that. So you have things like pastas and noodles, like such a huge Mm. noodle culture. So why don't we talk about that? Um, Anyways, once they started milling things, huge amount of, like, breads and, like, dough-based things took off. I Mm -hmm. mean, the sheer amount of dough-based things in Asian cuisine. Hell yeah. Fucking dumpling, get in my mouth. Yum, Uh, yes. But when we talk about breads, like mantu buns, which are probably one of the most kind of, like, staple kind of breads when you think about it, they're not baked in the same way that we're seeing in Europe or in the Middle East. They're boiled. Uh, Yes. And, like, steamed, Mm -hmm. which is wild. Mantu buns, hugely popular in the Han Dynasty. Oh, I did even write it down. 206 BC to 206 CE. Uh Look at you. Thank you. Uh, Legend has it. This is, like, my favorite thing ever. It's so cute. Was that Su Liana led to his armies on a campaign against Nanmound, which is now Myanmar. And then when they were coming back, they had to cross this, like, really dangerous river. And the, like, people in the surrounding town were like, oh, yeah, you can't cross that unless you sacrifice 50 men. And he's like, well, I'm not going to, like, sacrifice my own men. And I'm not going to go and, like, try and wage war and kill another 50 because, like, there's just been so much death already. So he was like, guys, kill a couple of the cows or, like, cattle of sorts Mm -hmm. and uh, use their meat to fill, like, these buns made of dough. And then we'll shape them to look like heads and then throw them in the river. 
and then they got through, and that's why we have Mantu buns, and aren't they cool? That's adorable. Seems like so much extra work. Like, why do you have to kill the cows? Why can't you just make a bun? That's, I know, I thought that too. And the interesting thing too about like the history of Mantu buns is they were originally not filled with anything. Like later Ooh. iterations are filled. So I was, you know, kind of confused about that. But I mean, who's to say? Whatever. So pound we of do flesh. obviously, exactly, your pound of flesh. We do have a very rich tradition of bread in Asia. Uh, it's not to say that it wasn't there. It's just a lot of it. I mean, if you're looking at kind of like the Middle East, like, or, like, the areas that kind of easily touch the Middle East, like, if you're interacting with, like, Persian countries or you're interacting with, like, India and all the, like, the culture is just so fluid at this time that a lot of it mm-hmm. is just that same kind of, like, leavened made on, like, either, like, a, some sort of, a like, a tandoor, basically. Uh, yes. In India, to, so that you're getting, like, a naan and that sort of stuff. Like, that's very, like, all over the place. Like, flatbreads. Yeah, flatbreads. Thank you. I've just read it so much in the past, like, week, so it's on but, my like, mind. again, the flatbreads, when you say that, it feels like that's suggesting unleavened, but, like, there definitely is leavening in it. And mm. also, there's so many articles, just, this is a sidebar here, but so many that, like, seem to, and, like, not articles, I mean, just, like, clickbaity articles that <laughs> I read, were, like, yeah, and then they got yeast and everything. It's, like, no, people realized the yeast was everywhere. Like, they didn't know what it was, but they were, like, using yeast before we had commercialized yeast. Don't don't get it twisted. Yeah. So Commercial anyway. yeast wasn't until, like, the mid to late 1800s. Exactly. So we're not even talking about that today. Yeah, um, get out. So, anyways, late Roman era, we're seeing bread being marked with crosses as Christianity takes greater significance. Mm. All the bread that we use in Christian ceremonies was leavened, and then the first unleavened breads in Christian tradition were introduced around the 8th century CE, form of the Eucharist. Is that how we said it? Yes. Thank you. Uh, So, it's a flat wafer of bread that was made by pressing irons around the dough. This is in the Western Christian tradition, Mm -hmm. uh, or with a stamp, like we say, uh, this is a little bit more Eastern, but like still not really happening. Luke twenty two nineteen, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's at like the last supper. He's like, Hey guys, you know, it'd be sick as if you just ate a lot of bread and thought of me. It's like, yes, I do think of God every time I think of bread. <laughs> um, but then it leaves the whole question of should communion bread be leavened or unleavened in Western Christianity? I, like I said, we have a very different opinion from Eastern Christianity. So yeah, unleavened bread in the West because it was an unleavened bread at the feast. But then in the Eastern uh, Christian tradition, they argue that the Gospel of John described the Last Supper preceding the feast of the unleavened bread. And just as Christ rose, the bread used for the last, or sorry, for the host should rise. And that Uh, leavening distinguished Christian practices from Jewish practices as well. mm. Uh, Like unleavened bread, obviously, for Jewish Passover. Matzah. this new, yeah, exactly, matzah. So this new religion must leaven. So I'm just sort of like obsessed with the idea of them being like, no, guys, heroes, the bread has to rise. Like, get with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so like literal, but then as a metaphor, oh, yep. It's perfect. It. Uh, <laughs> anyways, no agreement between the two halves was reached. So it came to a head at the schism of uh, 1054. The Western church continues to use the unleavened bread for the Eucharist at Eastern church. So that's pretty cool. In uh, Bolsena in 1263, 
Uh A German priest was said to have doubted the presence of God in the Eucharist bread, so he broke it in half and it spilled blood. He was so moved that his face, sorry, his faith, his face and his faith were reaffirmed and he consecrated the feast of the Corpus Domini. So we have all these examples of just like, obviously there's like endless quotes of bread in the Bible and I'm not going to do all of those, but just like wild this whole debate going on at this time everybody's very worked up about what they should do with their bread (laughs) in the church and like the church is obviously taking such a huge like it's center stage at this time period like Mm -hmm. that's what the middle ages are is people getting worked up about god (laughs) (laughs) so no wonder they would be so worked up by their bread uh another thing that's got everybody all worked up is plague can confirm Uh... still concern (laughs) Uh, sorry. Ergotism. In the Annals of Xantines, uh reports that in the year 857, a great plague of swollen blisters consumed the people by a loathsome rot so that their limbs were loosened and fell off before death. So the victims would suffer from hallucinations, insanity, vomiting, gangrene of the hands and feet due to constriction of the blood flow to the extremities. These afflicted felt as though they were being burned at the stakes as their fingers and toes split open and dropped off one by one. A late medieval chronicle wrote of an invisible fire that separated the flesh from the bones and consumed it. I am going to be sick. Um, Yeah, gross. (laughs) Yeah, it was said that 40,000 people in northern Germany were killed by this disease in the year 994. In the 11th century, a group of lay people created an order to take care of people afflicted by this disease. They declared St. Anthony of Egypt to be the patron saint of the order, and the disease became known as St. Anthony's Fire. Oh, why does this matter, though? Because this is something you get from eating bad bread. Like, if the wheat that you're using has gone moldy and gross, which, like, people... There was such a hard time to get wheat in this time period enough to feed mm-hmm. everybody, which, like, I think is the common thing that we've seen throughout literally all the history I've looked at so far is just, like, people are never getting enough bread. Um, but they're using this bad wheat, and then you get these bad, like, kind of black loaves, and you're like, eh, I'm sure it's fine. And then next thing you know... I'm starving, so of course I'm going to eat it. Exactly. And then your fingers are falling off. Ew. Like, the... The... the spl- oh, ugh, ugh, No. Anyways, this is still something that's happening, though. Like, Mm. it's not really in the developed, like, more developed countries, but in kind of developing nations, it's still definitely a thing. Also, not really sure how we feel about the term developing nations. Like, I don't know. Yeah, not great. Because, like, third world isn't the term either, but, like, I don't know. None of it's good. Just, like, places with less access to healthcare, I suppose. Sure. Or less access to, like, good, uh, like, foodways and... The formerly colonized has that. Ooh, mm. there we go. Um, so beyond this concern for obviously like nutritional health, we're seeing that really kind of bump up against a concern for still being able to get the nutrition that you need. Like that's why people are taking these risks. We also have this huge, huge problem of bakers like trying to fuck you over basically, which of course they're like trying to make a buck. Everyone's trying to like feed their families and stuff. So, a concern for the standardization of weight and size of a loaf of bread is continued across, like, basically from the dawn of time onwards. As soon as people (laughs) realized that they, like, could give X amount to the bakers and get X amount back, but they didn't really know, like, how that correlated, they're like, hmm, suspicion. Uh, 
Yes. So we have the assize, assize, I don't know. It means a judicial inquiry. That's what the word is. Uh, cool. Of bread and ale that was finalized in 1266. It has its roots starting as early, like the actual process of like kind of the legal stuff behind it as 794. It's a law that regulates the size of bread and tries to remove the concern that bakers were hoarding the grain. In some Italian mm-hmm. cities, the price of bread was kept the same regardless of the cost of grain uh, and regardless of the like yields of the year. And instead, the size of the loaves was what varied. Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. you wouldn't have to pay, like, one year. You pay five, like, whatever, shillings, five... Yeah, sure. Gold coins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, magic pieces. Uh, and then the next year, you paid the same five, but maybe your bread was a little bit smaller. Maybe it was a little bit bigger. Um, It obviously, up to a point, like, after it got so, like, small or so big or, like, the the pricing basically changed too badly, then they would mm-hmm. kind of insert a new size into the like conversation yeah uh, that's happening everywhere because i like have that constantly in a later yeah. discussion yeah mm-hmm. even in the this 1800s is just yeah one example of like these laws being put into place where people are like mm-hmm. oh yeah we got to figure this shit out and like not obviously the same thing but like pretty much the same thing pompeii <laughs> when again sorry mm. to go back there they had yeah, a table always. in their markets that had like indents into it that were the size of a certain weight so if you thought that somebody had cheated you on like how much grain you got you could put it in the thing see if it was like full to the top if it wasn't you go back to the guy and be like motherfucker look and then potentially they got a hand cut off hopefully (laughs) anyways these laws like outlined punishments for the bakers who shortchanged their patrons Mm. and this is basically where we get the baker's dozen from because they were like fine i'll just throw in another loaf calm down you're gonna be fine so that was pretty cute Uh, and we still have a baker's dozen today which I really didn't realize was like I didn't know what that meant until quite recently. I always thought it was just because like bakers are like stereotypically fat and like that they're eating all of their sweets. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, I love that explanation. They're just like a baker would want an extra one in there. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, all right, all right, sure. we'll go with that. Sure. Um, anyways, these regulations focus mainly on white wheat bread that costs more and was traditionally consumed in urban centers and just like by the upper class, like people are, they're getting all worked up about the fancy bread, right? But there's also regulations for the denser kind of darker breads made with rye and millet. Uh, the statute of Verona in 1327 ordered that millet and rye be mixed in fixed proportions of one menale of millet to one stario of rye. So everything very legislated. Again, the middle ages, you think of hunger, you don't think so much of legislation. But turns out, there you go. Uh, <laughs> another kind of concern that we're seeing about supply here is, like, there's no reserves. If you have a bad year, you have a bad year. Uh, yeah. I read this really interesting paper about, like, the cost of storage and just what we can tell from middle-aged, like, record-keeping of their mm-hmm. grain reserves. And when I say storage, I don't necessarily mean like, oh, it's there for like, you know, six months because that's kind of like the time that we're doing like our harvesting, our planting, blah, 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 like milling it into it. I'm talking about like year after year, how much are you keeping into the next? And there isn't a ton of that, especially as you're looking into uh, cooler climates, like England is the example that they're using. You don't have these reserves of grain. Uh, And that's super scary because this is a society where people are really, really, like, dependent on that caloric intake from that bread. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Between 1208 and 1448, so that's quite a long period, under 2% of grain was ever carried over into the next year. Whoa. 
I'm like, again, these numbers are so, like, how did we get them? They're very finicky. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of times they don't mention, like, zero carried over. It's just, like, assumed that, you know, one thing or another. And not every place has records. We don't have everything. But, again, that's the stat that we have. And it's wild. The other thing, though, is, like, would mm. you even want to be carrying, like, holding the grain for that that's long? Because the, then uh, it's more likely. Yeah. Part of the reason isn't just because of the lack of, like, available grain to carry over but because it's such an enormous investment like it costs a fuck ton to store it and Mm. you're now it's depreciating in value and you're going to lose a ton of it to like rodents that are coming in to mold that's going to kill you and make (laughs) your fingers fall off like not a good call we can also see that there aren't these reserves because of the hugely fluctuating prices between the seasons so because there isn't a reserve to kind of buffer that price it's like however much we got this year we can charge what we want you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then let's talk about what the ladies were doing, you know? Ooh. <laughs> they spent the majority of their time, obviously, doing domestic chores. Like, people in the Middle Ages, it, when I see people, I'm not talking about the upper class. I'm talking about your average, like, run-of-the-mill poor person. Because everyone was Crispin always poor. Crispin the Surf. Crispin the Surf. What was he doing? Uh, no, because he was a boy, so he wasn't doing this. But women were doing all this domestic like all these domestic chores and milling wheat was the most time consuming one of them. Mm. Like this took a ridiculous amount of time. (laughs) They did this with kerns and they, these were operated by sitting on the ground and traditionally you'd have two women working together. Uh, We have a quote from Matthew 24, 41, two women shall be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken and the other left to trade off the hardest grinding is basically what it is. And if then mm. one to pour into like new grain into the center of it, while the other yeah. one kind of keeps it turning. If traditional patterns of repetitive work hold true, there may have been a traditional kern grinding song to accompany the work, assuming that oh. they had the breath to sing them. <laughs> like that was a quote that I read by just like some snotty author. And I was like, that's fucking great. I love it. Uh, communal mills, were not really a thing at the beginning of the Middle Ages, but they became more and more prominent. Uh, and so now that there's a space you can go and pay a small fee, mm. by small I mean large, uh, to get your wheat milled for you. Originally, this was something that women did as part of their domestic labor, and now they have this extra free time, but it is costing them something. And eventually it becomes legit, like law that you have to take your wheat to be done at a mill. You can't do it in your home. They're actually having people going around and like searching for these in your house. Like you have to hide them or they could be confiscated or destroyed. We still have obviously some examples from because the people who owned the mill wanted to make a buck. Oh, and then the people who were like the government gets taxed from that. Probably. Uh, It didn't super say that, but I have a student or just like the people who owned the mills were the people in government. Like if you're rich enough (laughs) to make one, that's, you know, Mm -hmm, now mm -hmm, there is mm -hmm. a very fascinating study that someone did uh, that analyzed the upper arm bones of women from Neolithic through Iron Age. And they found that the women of the period who spent much of their time grinding had bones that were five to 10% stronger than rowers from Cambridge University rowing team. Oh my gosh. So that's pretty wild. Like, that's and again like how, what what do we know the constant like you know obviously incorrect but you know the food pyramid where they're all like get your dairy in and your all like these milk and blah 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 so that your bones can be nice and strong like these people weren't eating a necessarily super varied diet that made sure that they had bone strength it was just the sheer like manual labor that was just yeah. going on <laughs> 
And then what does it look like when you're actually consuming this bread in the Middle Ages? Mm. It's not necessarily just like eating a sandwich or like a chunk in your mouth. It's mostly being used as like a plate. So you have this kind of harder stale bread usually and you serve your food on top of it. The drippings kind of go into it. And then, and it always says in all of these articles that discuss this, they're like, and then you either feed it to the dog or the poor people. It's like, nah, bitch, like you eat it. Like, unless you're super wealthy, you're eating this. Um, Yes. So then let's talk about Baghdad. Uh, 10th century Ibn Sayyar al-Warag gives his thoughts on the best kind of bread to eat. The wheat bread agrees with almost everybody, particular varieties made with generous amounts of yeast and salt and allowed to fully ferment and bake well. Such breads are lighter and digest faster. Thin bread with tamarisk seeds, which is called jizmaj, and rugog, which is a very thin bread, are, by comparison, less nutritious and digest much faster. Bread baked mm. in mala, which is a pit with hot ashes and stones, tabag, which is a large flat pan, and any other similar varieties that do not ferment or bake well are hard to digest and cause stomach aches. Only people used to strenuous labor can eat them more often. So this is the first example that I want to pick up on of kind of the othering within this food of, like, if you do it mm. one way... And, I mean, we've already discussed this in terms of, like... Homer's quotes about like people that are like bread eaters, people that aren't bread eaters, that sort yes. of thing, and how we and today it's such a thing <sighs> to have like you ascribe so much value to people who eat similar things to you or do consume nutrients in the same way, which is so silly, but whatever. Um, yep. So we're already seeing like the people who are eating leavened bread versus unleavened bread. We've also seen this huge disparity and like an othering effect of what kind of wheat you're doing. Like if you're eating a lot of like, you know rye like darker breads that's like a factor like you're different from the people who are eating not rye bread and then also being able to be like rich enough to like to pay someone to finely mill such a good point as well yeah like what are you or not even just the milling of wheat because after a point that does become everybody that has to get it Mm -hmm. but people who have people in house to bake it or people in house Mm. to grind it before it's necessary to go to a mill like if you have slaves and this is one thing that i read a couple of times where it's just like if you have slaves they're a hundred percent doing the milling like nobody is doing that themselves they super don't want to um so nobody wants strong arm bones no they're like we are looking to look like proper surfs we want our you know blouses to just fall off our delicate shoulders <laughs> we don't want you know man arms um first recorded history of non can be found in the notes of indo-persian poet amir kushro in three or sorry 1300 uh, ce this bread is cooked in a tandoor and is probably related to earlier persian breads that was cooked on hot stones like again this flatbread tradition carries on yeah then we get to the 15th and 16th century, which is, it's such an interesting kind of example of this period that I think, and when we think of Middle Ages, like I'm sure this is past the Middle Ages now, like people are doing things, but I don't typically think of people doing, like traveling about or writing about things for fun. Mm. Like I think of, again, like hard labor and like (laughs) terrible times, but it's just a wonderful example of, you know, people actually having some joy. So in these 15th, 16th centuries, uh, writings about travel are super popular. And one of the things they focused on was Ottoman food habits, like interacting mm. with the Turks, uh, yeah. quotes, uh, and what they were consuming. 
it's like I said, often the focus on food is to like exoticize it and to other these people, uh, just like how not only was the food different, but the practices surrounding eating it were very different. Mm, I have this quote. The bread that the Turks ordinarily eat is black and terrible, badly baked, and this is because sometimes they make huge loaves and place inside cumin seeds, poppy seeds, and thousands of other things so that on the outside it cooks and inside remains raw. They make another sort of bread that is very slim and long, which even though it is cooked a bit better, it's still terrible and burnt. Everything is made from flour that comes rough from the mills. No one eats good bread unless they have it made at home. The Grand Turk eats the whitest bread it is possible to find, but it too is insipid. I ate it, and it seemed to me that I had chalk in my mouth. So in all things, they have less delicacy than us. That's Luigi Bassano in his uh, (laughs) writing, Costumi e i modi particular della vita dei Turci, which is 1545. Which, like, what a douchey comment to make. It's just, like, so snark. It's so snarky. And, like, again, different strokes for different folks. Whatever. So, this dichotomy is really stark in all of these writings like that's just one example of somebody being like crude about it they're talking about like isn't it ridiculous that they eat meat that like is only just like done like this you don't serve it like the french were very like you don't serve it with a sauce mon dieu like that sort of thing or like they would often talk about how like some of these people uh didn't drink any alcohol and they're like that's weird they just drink water like animals and then others were like you see them they drink way too much alcohol it's insane they're just drunks all the time um Anyways, bread was even believed to be, quote, the glue that kept all of the foods in place and undercooked bread to be very obstructive. It fills the belly, sorry, the belly generates gallstones and side pain and also produces gout. So there is, as well as this, like, uh, concern about whether you're civilized or uncivilized, this concern of, like, just general health. Like, people are, like, going back to the whole, like, it's fermented, it's better for you thing. They're worried. Like, they want to eat their bread in a way that's good for them. They don't want that uh, gluten bloat. This, I wasn't planning on super talking about this, but uh, I saw an article that's like, the church, like the Pope, has outlawed gluten-free bread. Wait, recently? Like, I swear I saw a picture and it was like a, if not this Pope, like the one or two before. Being like, yeah, gluten-free bread doesn't count because you have to have, like, additives and fillers in it and stuff, and those are not present in the body of Christ. So... I could see that either being totally true or being, like, an April Fool's article. Like, when did you see this? Um, I, it came across it in my writings, to, or my readings today, and I okay. believe it's true. I genuinely do. But if mm-hmm. it is an April Fool's today, then yes, I did fall for a clickbait article, and I'm not ashamed. But that's great. That's, like, good content. That's the kind of clickbait I want. Right? Ugh. The only joy that's left in life these days is clickbaity articles and bread. (laughs) So, let's talk about Japan. Bread, when did it get introduced to the Japanese? They didn't have a huge culture of doing it independently on their own. So, when we have Portuguese sailors arriving in Japan in 1543, uh, before their National Isolation Edict, which was 1987, uh, Mm -hmm. they like found out about bread and we're like hey this is pretty cool (laughs) it became like pretty popular and oda nobanaga which is the famous general and the feudal era ruler of the time uh he was noted to eat some kind of bread brought by the missionaries and everybody was really taken with it but then when they closed off 
uh, interactions with other countries. Then it kind of stopped. It kind of, I don't know, just declined in popularity. Nobody was really doing it. I don't know what that's about. Maybe it was just that there wasn't enough time for people to super like cement the processes into there. Also, it's just like you need different infrastructure in order to do it. But yeah, I mean, I did know. they even, did they have wheat crops? They don't that's really have the enough thing. land. Yeah, that's the other point too. It reemerges in like 1840 as a ration during the Opium War. Like the Ooh. generals were like, yeah, this seems like it'll keep everyone full. Like, good idea. <laughs> Which again, just like the idea of people constantly wanting to give their troops like foods and then making large changes to diet because of it is interesting. Let's talk about France because they have a lot of feelings. Standard <laughs> oh greens, goodness. 18th century France, to a lesser extent Europe as well, but like mostly France, were wheat and rye. And the flour made from this is called mété. This combination was commonly used for bread baking and it's referenced even earlier in the 1598 edition of Charles Estienne's Maison Rustique. He says the bread, uh, the bread made of flour is among the best. This popularity of a bread made of two types of grain with a darker color uh, directly challenges the notion that the wealthy only ate white bread. So that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it was tasty enough to warrant all classes consuming it while keeping for longer because of the rye. So another like great thing to have in this period where we're still really worried about, you know, bread going off and, like, your grain spoiling and shit. Yes. Um, we also hear of rye and bread being favored as people thought it was helpful to regulate the bowels. So just another prime example of bread being good for you. The standard grains that would comprise the bread that the average kind of, like, middle, lower class person in France ate, how much of the, like you know, that kind of class of people's income did this grain cost? 58% in 1788. Now, 1789, how large of a percentage? 88%. Do you know what else happened in 1789? The storming of the Bastille. Um, What? Yeah. Never would have guessed. People were literally so mad that they just took over a prison. (laughs) No, obviously there was other stuff going on, but like, isn't it convenient? I'm like, what a dink that people are getting so pissed when they don't have any food. Like, it keeps us complacent when we're not starving. <sighs> Bread wasn't, like, the only thing that the French ate, of course, but it was enough that, like, these prices were really, really significant. And starvation is a very real concern here. Uh, By 1793, the Committee of Public Safety was elected. And this is kind of like a more Republican kind of party in the midst of like the terror and all this shit going down and they they weren't that great was elected and one of their first acts was was to stay no nobody was was to stabilize the price of bread decreeing that a maximum price uh decreeing a maximum price and denying bakers the option to bake cakes for the elite so that all the grain went to make the people's bread so Mm. that was fantastic and then you have the price control that was eliminated by the directory which is even more kind of like right-wingy uh 1795 to 99 uh they were like, eh, fuck it. People can figure it out on their own. <laughs> and then I suppose I didn't really write anything down about it, but I feel like we should just briefly touch on the most famous bread quote of like, uh, it let them eat cake if there is no bread by Marie Antoinette, which she did not say. Nope. And real sad that she gets maligned so much, but also she was a dumb bitch. So like, whatever. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's like, it's like trying to ask, I don't know, just any celebrity. It's like, hey, all these people have food insecurity. Like, what, what would should be we your, do? Like, what should we do? And they'd be like, I don't know, just like get Instacart. 
I don't know. That is literally the modern equivalent. Also, I'm sure I've told you this before, but my favorite celebrity, like, stupid quote, and I love Britney, you know I do, but it's, mm-hmm. like, one of the single greatest things I've ever seen was an ad campaign for, I feel like, Fossil or Roots or something like that, where they had mm. quotes from celebrities talking about Canada, and hers was, like, I love going to overseas places like Canada. Oh, it's like, oh no. I don't judge you, Britney. Like, you did not have a proper education. Like, that's okay. But I love that quote so much. But yeah, anyways, uh, we can also look at the French Revolution and people hating Marie Antoinette as like some real gendered shit and also some like real nationalism. Uh, And also there's so much, but it doesn't really matter. People were hungry. That's why they revolted. And Marie Antoinette should never have let that rumor get started. (laughs) It did not go well for her. She didn't have a good enough PR team. That's the real issue. The PR team for the royal family at the time was really, really shit. And that's why it all went to hell in a handbasket. The only reason. Yeah. Uh, So that's all I got for you today. That's great. Thanks. uh, Yeah. Let them eat brioche. I don't know. Isn't that the other one that they say? That's the other one that like it's potentially bad. Ugh. Okay. I'm trying to think like there's a lot of themes that you were talking about that are going to be tied into here. Because it's a global theme. Because it's a global theme. Well, and also, like, speaking of othering, Mm. basically I'm just going to be talking about, like, colonialism. Because I'm going to talk about Africa, like, five seconds of South America, Mexico, and then, like, North America, specifically Indigenous people. Great. I love it. I love a good, like, scream rant to start the day. Great. Yes. Um, Okay. So let's talk about, let's start with Africa. And I think it's really interesting coming off of this idea of, like, everyone being, like, constantly fed bread as, like, their only subsistence food Mm. and just, like, the freakouts that are going on in, like, Rome and Europe and, like, everywhere about, like, this lack of bread and the lack of sustenance. Because whenever we kind of talk about, like, Africa and African foodways, there's a constant, like, Eurocentric like capitalist minded discussion about like scarcity and surplus. Mm. <laughs> like Hell we've yeah, been so conditioned to think of Africa as the epitome of scarcity and food insecurity. I remember going on like encounters with Canada or whatever, like that grade 10 like class trip that you could go on and you like went to Ottawa and you got to meet all these other people and there was like different themes like one was like science and technology and I was the one that was like international relations and I was like this seems cool and one of the like activities was going to eat at a different restaurant there was like there's Greek food there's like this and there was Ethiopian food and there isn't like not that I'm aware of at least like a huge culture of Ethiopian food in Vancouver and I'd like never had it before so I was like oh I'd like this and I didn't fucking get it and I was so mad but anyways I feel like so many people made the joke to me being like what is it it's just an empty plate and I was just like, oh my god, y'all are tripping, hey? That's rough. You know, Ethiopian food is delicious. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's not an empty plate, so it's no. pretty good. Like, it's like a is- giant platter with, like, uh, injera, which is made from, like, teff. Like, that, like, super flat bread, yeah. which I'm not even talking about because it's, like, not really leavened and I'm just... Fine. I'm talking about themes. I'm talking about themes, themes not breads. <laughs> um, but yeah, and you, like, get it and you, like, you eat with the taff like with your hands it's great it's delicious Mm. i clearly have not yet experienced the full range of food in the world and that's exciting things to look forward yes 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, anyone talking about like food in Africa, we're all like freaking out and it's like, like it's a classic othering technique Mm -hmm. where savagery is equal to scarcity and vice versa. When really perhaps what we should be thinking about is surplus is equal to gluttony and greed, AKA eating or owning more than we could possibly need just for the sake of owning and consuming stuff. Mm -hmm. Cough, cough. North America, Europe. Yeah. There's not like a ton written, especially like in English, about what people were harvesting throughout Africa, like before the 15th century and like colonialism Mm -hmm. in general. And anything that is written is like, you know, history is written by the people in power. So we only hear Mm -hmm. about crops that mattered to powerful nations. But going back to scarcity and surplus links us right into one of our favorite discussions, which is monocultures. Mmm, delightful. Because, like, the best way to create a surplus is by focusing on one sole high-yield crop. Like, for example, maize. Mm-hmm. Corn. Which People literally can't stop with the corn. Nobody can stop with the corn, and I don't even really want to talk about corn, but it was brought to the African coast by Europeans to help, scare quotes, solve the scarcity problem. When was this brought originally? Um, like, when they were doing, like, all of their shitty, like, colonial Mm -hmm. enslavement. the first kind of, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, they're like, oh, no, like, you must be starving because all you're eating is, like, like, you're just, like, eating millet or yams, which also yams are a colonial transport, which nobody really talks about, but. Really? Yes. Well, that's very interesting. So maize was brought there. Although apparently, like, I read this one article, um, and obviously, like, pearl millet mm. was, I don't know if that's obvious, but millet is very commonly, like, written about as, like, a staple African crop. Because mm-hmm. it is indigenous, to the best of my knowledge. Um, I feel like it is. I feel like it's indigenous it definitely in a is. lot of places. Like, you, you got it everywhere. And there's different kinds. So yes, mm-hmm. so pearl millet was like the most widespread crop even actually after maize was introduced. And like mm-hmm. this one article was showing where it's like, no, like the reason that maize, like people weren't starving, first of all, like they had millet. Mm-hmm. They just didn't like consume like crazy amounts. Um, So to Europeans, they're like, oh my gosh, you must be starving. You don't have like backups. That is so funny um but yeah so apparently like maize was slowly introduced over like a long period of time because they're like yeah like we'll try out this new crop but like we don't need it because we've already got millet which is like our jam (laughs) um but bread so flatbreads Mm -hmm. were made from the pearl millet and are a staple um on the african coast from like 400 bc up until and like early european uh colonial contact Mm. And they're baked kind of a lot like your like early examples of just like early forms of bread. So it's like you make kind of like like a porridgey thing and then bake it on hot ash, mm-hmm. which that's kind of just like all of the original breads. So exactly. That's, cool. that's the thing. People aren't getting crazy about this. Like it's one idea that everyone's doing. Yeah, it's just like you get a grain and then you cook it and it makes kind of like a cake. And that's great because you can bring it if you need to or just eat it and mm-hmm. it all works. Pretty much everything other than that that we see that's like an African bread is like totally a European product, as we will see with the Americas. Because like Mm -hmm. wheat 
is not really found naturally in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then just like in general, like a sneaky kind of like byproduct of just colonialism in general that keeps the like imperialistic control up and running is the dependency on imports of European and American products. So like milled white flour. What an idea. It's like if you get rid of all these initial things and then you bring in something else and are like, use this only. Like, no fucking wonder. Now. Ugh, whatever. <laughs> yep. 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 Uh, so yes, quick search of most popular breads from Africa. Like the results are definitely not millet cakes. Um, but we have Nigerian puff bread, also called Ooh. puff puff or bofrot in Ghana. It's like basically a yeasted donut ball that's like fried. That so good. Yeah, they look very delicious. I mean, I mm. also saw them called beignets and they look like beignets, but apparently oh, the mixture is a bit different. <sighs> I can't help raise my eyebrows and be like, hmm, we're calling these beignets? And this is where? Yeah. Northern Africa? Oh, hi, France. What's up? Yeah, interesting. But, like, no, there was, like, not really any actual history of it. It's just, like, all recipes. And people are like, yeah, this is, like, a traditional Nigerian bread. Okay. Interesting. Going back to maize for a moment, we've also got mealy bread, which is basically, Mm. like, a cornbread. Or actually, I also read more accurately, it's, like, a corn pudding from mostly South Africa. Yeah, so it's like you mix, like, kind of, like, grind the maize, and you, like, can steam it. So it's almost like a tamale as well, but Ooh. then a lot of the recipes were, like, it looks just like a normal, like, cornbread. Interesting. So I don't know. That's I fun. continue to be uncertain if I actually like cornbread or if I just think that I like cornbread. Every mm. time I have it, I'm uh, just like, this is good, and then I'm like, what is it? I think that, like, the cornbread is best when it's got, like, a shit ton of fat in it and mm-hmm. it's like right out of the oven because if it sits for too long then it gets dry and it's not as good i've definitely had like bad cornbreads where i'm like oh this is just like poorly executed but i've also had ones where i'm like i'm pretty sure this is like really well executed and i'm just like not 100 percent certain i always like the first like couple of bites and then i'm like wait a minute <laughs> anyways um yeah so the last one that i'm going to talk about is crachel crackel also mm. called El Gors, and mm. it's from Morocco. It's like a sweet kind of brioche type bun. So again, <clears> France. <throat> Just getting up in there. Yes. It is typically flavored with um, aniseed, sesame, and orange flower water. Yum. And um, looks delicious. I just can't hear about all these kinds of breads because all I want to do is just go consume (laughs) bread. Well, it's going to be a tough (laughs) couple minutes for you. Um, Okay. So that's like literally all I have about Africa. It's basically just we're rude. Yeah. (laughs) That is the most gentle way you could possibly say that. Um, Okay. So now let's go to Mexico. So Mexico, allegedly... It had its first wheat crops planted by a black man enslaved by Hernan Cortez after he found three grains at the bottom of a sack of rice, which sounds very not true. So Everything about that sounds garbage. <laughs> uh, but what Cortez definitely did do, besides be a slave a, owner, oh, slave owner and like murder, mm. um, 
mass murder. Uh, he built the Santa Domingo Mill on the Tacubaya River near Mexico mm. City, which was very important because mills and then the bread that they made were as essential to the Spanish colonizers' plans to, quote, civilize the indigenous peoples. Ugh. Classic. What? Love you don't that. eat bread? You got to eat bread. And probably also, like, the worst part is, is that I kind of agree with that <laughs> statement, right? Like, like if okay. I had an alien and I was like, have you not had bread? It's really good. You should get into it. Right. But there's a difference between being like, bread's delicious. Like, you should try this. And being like, stop everything else you're eating. Only eat bread. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. And be Christian. Ugh. Uh, yeah. But... In this instance, like, it kind of worked also because of, like, all of their other, like, efforts of, like, bringing plagues and stuff. But anyways, <laughs> bread very quickly became a central part of the urban Mexican diet. By the 1700s, we are seeing privately owned panaderias, so bakeries, mm. uh, which are making up all of the bread in Mexico City. However, despite being private businesses... They are subject to intense supervision and regulation from the Spanish crown, who were very concerned that without their intervention, bread cartels would develop and make the bread market (gasps) go crazy. They should have their eyes on the avocados instead. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. So their regulations governing bread and grain were initially put in place after like a full decade of famine from 1575 to 1585 so like they're kind of trying to like be like wait we don't want people to starve so instead we're going to put in laws that are going to limit not only who could buy flour but also how much what kind from whom and when please know my eye roll in this oh yeah yeah, that's that's gonna fix things And then they went even further by also setting rules for what kinds of bread bakers could produce, how much they were allowed to charge, and where and at what time they were allowed to sell it. Like, it's like you're not allowed to sell bread before seven in the morning. Fuck you. That's so rude. (laughs) The the greatest bane of my existence is that I can't have access to every single thing that I want at all hours of every day. I now keep very irregular hours and if i want to be able to go out at 3 30 in the morning and get a loaf of bread i should be able to well good thing you didn't live in mexico in the 1700s <laughs> for a lot yeah, of reasons i thank goodness for that every day lack of yes. you know plague christianity and bread being like yes. really regulated so yeah it's like this weird mix of them being like all privately owned businesses, but then they're supposed to function like state run businesses Hmm. just so that like no one can be in competition with each other. It's also probably likely that even though they're like, we don't want you guys to starve. Like we're looking out for you. Like we don't want you to be like all of a sudden have the bread, like the bakers be all like defraudulent and charging crazy amounts of money it's like no 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 spain you've just recently witnessed a bunch of revolts and revolutions throughout europe because of bread shortages looking at you france big time stress so they're just like yeah we really want the market to be stable for you it's like mm, okay but it was like seriously a big deal because a failure to jump through all of their like bureaucratic hoops could be super disastrous for a baker 
for example, selling underweight bread could result in a two-year jail sentence. What the hell? That's so intense. And if you got caught with, like, not putting, like, a proper, like, brand or, like, marker on your bread, the first offense, like, you would get, I think, like, yeah, like, two years in jail. I didn't write this down, but I'm just remembering it. And then if you did it again, then they'd, like, banish you for up to two years. And then if you did it again, you'd be, like unable to sell bread like ever again it's like you're finished in this town kid i i I just can't even understand like why that's so dumb um yes it is but then also like their fears that the panaderias were gonna like defraud customers weren't like super unfounded because by the mid 18th century right under their freaking noses a very powerful bread cartel formed. <laughs> I'm sorry, but do you not kind of feel like the Spaniards getting really up in their fucking business all the time might have been a lead cause of that as opposed to just like natural inclination if left alone? Um, yes and no. Hmm. So basically, the bread gremio, which gremio. means owner's guild. The gremio was a group of very wealthy and influential Panaderia owners who were able to weasel their way into the political fabric of Mexico City and create the very thing that Spain was concerned they would do, a monopoly. I'm obsessed with this. This is the only gang I want to get into. <laughs> the first red flag, um, membership in the bread gremio was based on like money, not on bread baking ability, and poor bakers <laughs> were actively excluded for the hilariously ironic reason that the poor were likely, quote, to resort to trickery that would harm the business <laughs> and the public. It's like, um, sir? Uh, pot, kettle, have you met? Yes. Uh, it will not be surprising to you to learn that the shops owned by Gremio members were run horribly. Workers, most of whom were indigenous, were basically indentured laborers who worked to pay off insane debts. So, yeah, good thing that's totally another... stopped happening. Doesn't yeah. Happen now. I love that, like, the history of food is just so positive and uplifting constantly. Like, it's just one delicious meal after another. And not no bad repetitive. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's chill. So, like, obviously the colonial authorities figured this shit out pretty quick, but they didn't really do anything because the Gremio Monopoly helped maintain <laughs> order. So even though they knew about the abuses of power and, like, people, they were like, well, the market's really stable, though. <sighs> the okay. whole thing finally came crashing down when Napoleon invaded Spain in 1808, and then two years later, the Mexican people started fighting for independence. And yada, 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 super simplifying the Mexican Revolution. <laughs> I was gonna it say, was... like, we don't have time for that entire thing, please. We absolutely don't. But basically, after all of that shenanigans, it was like impossible to go back to the old system of like super regulation. So free trade was just like a thing. Uh, then we can fast forward another 50 or so years and we have the last monarch to rule over Mexico, Emperor Maximilian I, Ooh. who was an Austrian Habsburg, which again, don't have time for the genealogy of monarchy, but... Also the Habsburgs <sighs> were such dicks. <sighs> Such a nightmare. Um, he was put in power with the help of some conservative dudes within Mexico and the army and also Napoleon III in 1864. Ugh. 
Also, I'm sorry, but we do not talk enough about how Austria is fucked. Like, that whole situation <laughs> there for a while seemed real sus. It's like, they've... They get away with a lot of shit because they're just, like, small and in the middle of things. But, like, Austria has caused major drums. Major drums. And I just feel like everyone always wants to talk about how, like... Britain's so big and rude and like France is so annoying and like oh look Spain and Portugal are up to it again and like oh Germany what are you even doing but then Austria's just like look over there um anyway Maximilian was hella doomed because he ascended his supposed throne when there was literally already an independent Mexican government so he was Executed within three years. <laughs> but cool. apparently his entourage was responsible for bringing the bread that would later become the Mexican uh, bolillo. Which is like a small baguette. And it's used to make tortas, which are Mexican sandwiches. Love it. Yes. So that looks fun. Um, some other breads that I suspect are colonial transplants from like... <laughs> in south american stuff this is just like i'm sorry i just love how you phrase that it's like these are my list of suspects they're my list of suspects because it's like i just googled and i was like what are some breads from south america and then all of these things came up and i'm like this seems like very suspicious and like Mm -hmm. extremely european but nowhere in english but even like in spanish and like i can decode some spanish stuff Mm -hmm. but it's like no one was like the french are to blame or like goddamn germans bringing this bread Interesting. anyway they seem fun so the first is pan de agua which literally mm. translates to water bread and this is in like puerto rico and the dominican republic and possibly also the philippines although that seems different as well hmm. it is a but i guess crusty... it it's the spanish bringing it in yeah so it's like a crusty white bread kind of like a baguette um, but it is baked, so it's just like normal, like yeast, flour, water, like super basic bread dough. Mm-hmm. But what's different about it is it's baked by putting it in like a cold oven over a pan of boiling water. And oh. then as the oven like heats up to get the temperature, the bread like continues to rise and then bakes. So it gets like a super thin, crispy crust. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I love that because right. I am constantly forgetting to preheat my oven and just being like, ah, eh, it'll be fine. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> it's not usually. No. Anywho. Um, in Chile, we have pan amasado, which literally mm. translates to kneaded bread. And it is a small, round, and like kind of flat, like little, mm. uh, like loaf. I read like lots of references we're calling them like American biscuits, like a biscuit and gravy mm. type style. But to me, they look like like those like fluffy Greek pitas. Yum. Yeah, they seem delicious. Apparently they're served with every meal. Blah, 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 blah. There are some other ones, but then I was like, I don't know. Those are the most yeasty breads. Okay. America and Canada. We're going to get more into just like wheat crops Hmm. And, like, the true Americanization of bread next episode. But for now, a quick indicator of the inescapably colonial nature of bread (laughs) in America and Canada. 
So firstly, apparently Columbus brought a sourdough starter with him on his campaign of assholery through the Americas. Thank you. That's the only term that we're going to use from now on. Thank you. I just, I don't even know what to say. I mean, like, of course he brought a sourdough because Europeans can't live without bread. If we've they learned can't. nothing from this episode. Yeah. Um, that's also, I feel like, and I say this just as a dickish comment, but I feel like they had <laughs> too much stuff on the boat that they brought with them. You know what I mean? Like, they're the kind of people who went on holiday and packed their suitcase right to the brim on the way there, not leaving any room for souvenirs. But then instead of worrying about that, they just killed a bunch of people and used their skin as souvenirs. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, I was going to say it's like they're the kind of people that, like, pack all of this, like, extra stuff, but then forget the appropriate amount of underwear. Ugh, real, real, real. Okay. For this episode's on health and bread, let's health. talk about uh, nutrition and uh, indigenous peoples. Interesting. And this idea of quote unquote Western diseases, which are kind of like generally obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, mm. coronary heart disease, that sort of thing. So the whole idea of Western diseases was hypothesized by a British doctor named Dennis Burkett in like the 70s and 80s. Mm. And it's basically a theory that certain diseases are caused by Western diets, i.e. processed foods, sugary, fatty foods, and like a Western sedentary lifestyle. Makes sense. Quote, as a population adopts Western diet and lifestyle, Western diseases emerge in a distinct order. Obesity is among the first to appear, paralleled closely by a rising incidence of type 2 diabetes. Basically, he's able to kind of, like, he was sort of able to track where it's like, as we see... Yeah, you're just graphing the two things together, like, when you have an increase in these Western diets. Yeah, and it's like not... And it, it happens globally. Like, as people start to become more, like, Americanized... That, that's the trend of diseases. So this article is from 2004. And at the time, more people were overweight globally than underweight, which is stressful. Fascinating that that's, first of all, the planet is going to fall out of the sky <laughs> with all of us fatties on oh, it. Dear. Second of all, just like so fascinating to compare that to this like continued narrative we have. Like there's starving kids in Africa and like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Loads of nonsense. wonder who caused those starving kids in Africa. <laughs> um, so this is important for our specific talking today because indigenous populations are affected by lifestyle and diet changes at a very high rate. Uh, Abor Aboriginal people in Canada have rates of diabetes three times higher than the rest of the population. And studies of northern communities have also found 29% of young people and 60% of women to be obese. Is this because of, like, social factors that make, like, these Western, like, lifestyles and, like, uh, diets more, like, difficult for them to deal with? Or is it because of, like, a genetic disposition to like not agreeing with it um because i feel like i've heard both it's a i think it's i think it is both and i think it's a lot of things so mm. like part of the reason is when we're thinking specifically about like what are kind of the staples of these like western diets it's bread and it's like mm -hmm. milk products and what yeah. have we learned from like our past episodes on like yogurt and kefir a lot of people specifically indigenous people are lactose intolerant. 
Yeah, you just can't handle it. And then there's also been a lot of studies that they're probably like have some difficulties digesting gluten because if you also think about it, those indigenous populations haven't had the time to have their bodies. Exactly. It's just the adaptation is not as there. It's like you went from one day from eating just like indigenous plants and things that are like native to your lands. And then all of a sudden these people come in and are like, no, 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 no. You've got to eat this like shitty wheat flour that you've never even seen before and don't actually really know how to cook. And then also like social factors of it is that like, I don't always just want to stereotype Mm. and say like, you know, like poverty is more prevalent in indigenous communities but like the facts remain that that's a very real issue and like what causes like dietary issues yeah having no access to good healthy foods and instead eating like these heavily processed like shitty things and then not having access to healthcare and also like whatever yeah it's bad and it's just yeah it it doesn't work And, and then also just like the ideas of like even for people who aren't indigenous and haven't like genetically evolved which seems like a weird way to put it but i can't think of like a better way to kind of say but no, I, I get what you're saying like there is thousands of years of tradition behind it that like we just aren't necessarily seeing in certain areas yeah it's to like the same extent yes it's like as a person whose literal dna is like 50 percent irish 50 percent english <laughs> You are made to eat bread and potatoes. (gasps) I've grown up eating bread and like wheat. But the thing is, even as like white people, like modern diets aren't like good. Even if you've grown up eating wheat, it's not great for you. Like we love bread. This is a pro bread podcast, but like. It's a very pro bread podcast. It's not, you can't just eat bread. Um, So what were some examples of uh, an indigenous form of bread? We have acorn bread. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So traditionally, indigenous peoples, this is just like from Southern California is where I found this. So it's like Mm. the Chumash peoples. Mm -hmm. They got their carbohydrates from acorn meal, which was a little bit tricky because acorns have levels of tannins that are so high that they're like toxic unless you leach them out properly. Yeah. But kind of like the way that um, indigenous people in Mexico had figured out how to get corn to not like mm-hmm. kill them. Uh, the Southern Californian indigenous peoples got acorn meal to be edible by drying them out for a year, removing the outer shell, removing a thinner inner shell, pounding it into flour, sifting it using woven baskets and then like rinsing with water and basically cooking mm-hmm. like an oatmeal or like a little grit. Interesting. Yeah, it's very cool. I found a recipe for for acorn muffins from Edible LA, which was linked to this article, which sound fun. That sounds really good. Apparently you can just like buy acorn flour on the internet. I bet you it tastes really good, actually. I bet it does too. Like kind of like nutty and nice. I don't mm-hmm. know. So maybe we'll make All the squirrels are like obsessed with them. So like <laughs> must have something to it. Yes. So that's what indigenous people in America were more used to eating in terms of like a bread type product. That's the carbohydrates you're used to. Yeah. And then what happened when, again, aforementioned Columbus came in with his assholery and then his forebears. Uh, We got fry bread, Hmm. which is a very controversial, considered by some traditional staple of native food culture. So it's criticized for being unhealthy because it's like a disc of flour shortening and 
sometimes like a yeast or leavening of some kind that's like then fried in oil. Sounds so good. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but then anyone pointing out that it's like, mm, like this isn't like very healthy, blah, blah, blah. It gets so much angry backlash. We have a quote from Sherman Alexie, who was a writer, a Smokan writer, quoted in another article mm -hmm. that I read, and a so-called fry bread expert who has said that, quote, fry bread is the story of our survival. Supposed origins are from the mid-1860s, when starving Diné people confined by the American government in New Mexico at a place they called Hueldi, which means place of suffering. Mm. <laughs> Apparently the Diné women fried their rations of flour in lard to create a food with enough calories to help them survive this like really rough period of God, this is making me feel so emotional. Yeah, actually. it's not great. Um, However, and then mm. just to get shit on for this bread that like kept your people alive. Oh, well, here's horrifying. the thing. There are no actual records or testimonies of Dine people whose ancestors oh. survived or lived during that time. So it's like, it's kind of a classic, like we've come up with this story to explain kind of like why we eat fry bread. Mm -hmm. And like, you want to come up with it as like, a story of like resilience mm -hmm. that's a bit more like easily digestible. <laughs> um, because the truth is like, frankly, rougher. So after being forced to walk 400 miles away from their ancestral lands, the native peoples on the reservation were given meager rations of salt, cornmeal, muffin, coffee beans, and wheat flour. The Dine people would have probably done their best, having never cooked with, like, frankly, any of those things, really. So they were made very sick from either eating half-cooked, often spoiled flour, mm -hmm. um, and then also from malnutrition, because again, like, it's bad flour, and they don't really know what to do with it, and they're far away from home and not able to eat their typical diet. Oof. But somewhere in the middle of all of this, we do get to a point where fry bread is being made. The first photographic mm -hmm. evidence is from a picture um, in 1940 of a Dine woman with a basket of fry bread. So it must have been going on like probably mm -hmm. earlier, but not like, I don't, it, as always, like the written records are weird and it's always kind of an instance of like, some people are kind of making something that's similar. And then mm -hmm. it's most likely that the fry bread came about in conjunction with the Americanized trading post diet of the late 1870s and early 1900s, um, a time after treaties had been signed and the native peoples had like slightly more freedom, but mostly in terms of being able to buy like sugar and fats and canned food, which goes back to our earlier discussion of bad diets. It's also just like how much freedom is it really if like you can just buy the things that people tell you you can buy? Yeah, no freedom at all. But at least, I it's guess... It's just so sad. Yeah. Okay, so I have, again, a little bit of a long quote. So, while some natives eat fry bread as a way of signifying cultural identity, others connect fry bread to the inadequate foods given to tribes by the U.S. government and believe it a symbol of colonization. Indeed, none of the ingredients of fry bread are indigenous to this hemisphere. Isn't that such a good, like, just extrapolate that quote about fry bread into literally everything? Like, I feel like so... that that conversation of like some people being kind of okay with like okay like yeah like this is what we're doing and we're just gonna roll with it and we're gonna take it and like make it our own and others are like are you fucking kidding me look at the shit that we've had to go through and like both of them are right 
I know. And that's the thing. Like, reading through it, it's like, I guess there's something to be said for kind of, like, taking the food back. Mm-hmm. But then also, like, yeah, I mean, it's a fried food. Like, you shouldn't really be eating that with every meal. But then again, like, is that just my, like, Eurocentric, like, views of health? And it's just, like, it's such a shame that something that sounds, quite frankly, delicious has to be so loaded in nonsense and bad stuff. Well, you really bummed me out, thanks. Okay, how about Alyssa's maybe slightly less bumming? How about Bannock? Yes, delicious. Okay, so Bannock is the fry bread of the Northwest and Canada. Heck yeah, it is. It's a dense bread traditionally made from oatmeal or barley and then cooked on a griddle or hot stone. It was, like, it's been around in Ireland and Scotland for centuries. The name comes from the Gaelic banach, which means morsel, which is kind of cute. And it was obviously, like, transported to Canada by colonists. The bread or the name? The bread. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of, like, given our understanding of just, like, everything that we've been talking so far and the way that people's made bread by just, like, kind of putting together a mush and, like, cooking it on a stone. Mm -hmm. It's, like... It seems simplistic to just say that Indigenous Canadians copied whatever they saw, like, Scottish colonists doing. But, like, they certainly, they didn't not do that as well. So it's, like, it's also very much, like, a food of necessity. So just like the fry bread, we've got your forcible removal from your land, ecological devastation caused by mass farming, and, like, planting of invasive species like wheat by the Europeans, Mm. which meant that the reliance on the carb and fat-rich bannock was, like pretty much essential and again it's something that you can pack it's hard it's dense you can like carry it around but i guess unlike with fry bread it seems like there's a lot more like less controversy with bannock yeah there's a lot more buy-in i would say yeah and i think maybe because it's not always necessarily fried like it can be kind of like so the name doesn't you know yeah help the fry bread situation (laughs) It's, it's a bit tricky it's also delicious so good there's a restaurant oh. in Vancouver called Salmon and Bannock, which is the only completely indigenous owned and operated restaurant in BC. I've been there. The Bannock was great. No small nice. fucking feet, hey? Oof. I know. They're still up Jesus. and running even with COVID. You can get takeout. Oh, that's good. Yeah, would recommend. Aw, how cute. Kind of talking about before, but it's like all of this kind of talk, just with everything in this circumstance, it's like this idea, like we're always talking about with like, authentic foods but also like traditional food like what makes a food traditional is it like connected Mm. to your ancient past or just something you ate as a child is it something associated with rituals or holidays and bread really ticks all the boxes doesn't it like just in general like all the things it's such a part of religion it's such a part of like traditional like food gatherings no wonder everyone's got like their own little piece of it yeah and it goes into like it's part of the everyday and then also part of like sacred the special mm-hmm. yeah mm. yeah sorry to bum you out <laughs> sorry i am feeling really sad after all of this <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> it's not great <laughs> no not great at all and then just like it's so silly but like okay my experience eating bannock was like the first time i had it uh was up north when my dad was working up there mm-hmm. and like it was very much like clearly something like oh like this is from like an indigenous person to me and it was always one of those things like i don't have a ton of like links to indigenous culture myself but like it was always like kind of special like oh yeah like you know you've had bannock like it's part of that and then to just hear like oh <laughs> it's actually just like a sign of like really shitty colonialism and like isn't that sad 
kind of like, oh, that that doesn't ruin it, of course, but like makes it, you know, there's another layer. This is the problem with living in a mm. country that is founded on colonialism. Like literally mm-hmm. everything yeah. <laughs> can be viewed that yeah. way, right? Like, and I think it's totally good just how you take it. Like it's nice that, yeah, especially Bannock and like fry bread, fry bread's again, it's tough. It's that's an American one. I only read like a couple articles. Take it, take the stuff back. Like, why not? So interesting too. Like the idea of, um, I don't know. I feel like we, and this is kind of totally off topic, but mm-hmm. just like you know, all the memes of like the world is healing. Like <laughs> dolphins have returned back to like Venice or whatever, and like people are the plague that have come out of the past like year and a bit now, and how you have those and it completely disregards like indigenous contributions and like how humans aren't the plague like the capitalist bullshit society that we live in is the plague and all of that but then it's just like so fascinating that you have these people that really were really like inobtrusive in a way and like doing things in i want to say like healthy in quotes like means not just like in terms of their diet but just in terms of lifestyle and then they're associated with just like donuts as a food yeah it's i don't even know what because you can also go like you don't want to be that kind of like essentialist like natives are like in tune with the universe and so much more spiritual than us and like wouldn't it be great just like (sighs) fucking layers and shit y'all nuance it turns out everything is hard it's garbage (laughs) yeah so um yes sorry for I hope I didn't, we didn't ruin bread. I didn't ruin bread for everyone. I was going to say we, like what the fuck man, mine was uplifting as hell. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. But anyways, is that it for today? Should we? That's probably all. That yeah, note? great. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, next week we're going to talk about more depressing shit. Ah, but it's going to be easier because then we can just like openly like mock white people, so. As opposed to what we've been doing this whole other time, where we've been super pro. I don't know, just like sadder about it. <laughs> yeah, true. Anywho, thanks for listening. Um, Bye. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us at Pantry Staples Pod on Instagram. Yep, that's that's how it works. Uh, yes, obviously you know where to find us, but we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because that's where you're listening. Tell your friends. Yes. Yeah. Tell your foes. Leave us a nice comment. Yeah, rate, review, subscribe, bitches. Please. (laughs) See you in a bit. Bye. Bye.